Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Bob and Yart Live. I'm the pastor of Denver Bible Church. About 20 years ago, I attended a meeting in Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor, a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. The place was abuzz and packed. There must have been 500 people there. The discussion was about Dr. John Sanders, a member of the ETS, and He was one of the five authors who, a decade before that, wrote the classic book, The Openness of God. What an honor to have with us now Dr. John Sanders. John, welcome to the program. Well, good afternoon, everyone. uh, It's so great, John. I've been following your work for decades. And by the way, you did a wonderful job that day. There was a lot of controversy but what a great biblical presentation you gave of the nature of God. Thank you. You're very welcome. So I've asked you on, John, to talk about your chapter, The Historical Considerations Regarding Open Theism, but do you have any recollections about that day that you'd like to share? Yes. So the Evangelical Theological Society, which is fairly conservative, it, it does not represent like Wesleyan, Pentecostal um, evangelicalism, um, mostly Reformed, uh, Calvinist evangelicalism. But uh, they were, uh, the leaders there were having problems with Clark Pinnock and I and Greg Boyd uh, with our affirmation of open theism. And a number of the members wanted to exclude the option of open theism from their society, mm. that it would not be possible to be an open theist and be a member. So, John, the way that we put it on this program is, can God think a new thought? And if he could think a new thought, then the future must be open. So they were really considering whether or not if someone affirms that God could think a new thought, he would not be qualified for their membership. That would disqualify Correct. that person. Yes. And, and so I was presenting and making a case for what's called the um, model of uh, God being open to creatures, receptive, responsive uh, to creatures, and and that the future is not determined. There's freedom uh, for what God does and what we do. And the society did not garner enough votes to exclude Clark Pinnock and myself. So Mm. uh, we were able to uh, retain our, our membership but the point is, really, that it was controversial uh, within the broader evangelical community. And magazines such as Christianity Today yeah. ran articles um, uh, by me, for instance, and articles against open theism by, by others. Um, and I was very glad that Christianity Today at least allowed me <laughs> uh, to present uh, in that magazine. Yeah, the magazine founded by Billy Graham. So yes, open yes. theism, I think, has been the number one theological topic published by the major publishers over the last quarter of a century. So you guys that, really did a great job in bringing it front and center. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's interesting that 
the ideas of open theism have been around for generations, particularly after the Protestant Reformation. But it's like every generation reinvented the wheel and wasn't aware of what the previous generation had, had done. And that was true of me as well. When I first started researching, mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of groups in the United States and in Europe that had affirmed uh, these ideas as mm-hmm. well. Uh, well, we have on our website, opentheism.org, Will Duffy and I founded that site. We have a lot of debates out there, but we also have a timeline. And the timeline was, uh, the foundation of it was put together by Thomas Lukashow. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And he gave us permission to use that and expand on it. And it, it's really neat to see that this concept that God is alive, he's dynamic, uh, he can think new thoughts, that this goes back even centuries ago. Yes. So could I ask you to do something unusual in a, in a radio interview? Um, we're, we're going to talk about your chapter, which is chapter two of The Openness of God. John, your audio is great. Could you read the first paragraph? You set up the historical considerations so well. What do you think? Could you do that for us? Yes. Yeah. So the first chapter is by Richard Rice, and he lays out uh, biblical materials, uh, biblical evidence and support for the model of the openness of God. And then my chapter is called Historical Considerations. And the first paragraph is this. Why do we not usually read the Bible in the way suggested in the previous chapter? After all, Many of us do read the Bible initially as saying that God responds to us and may change God's mind. But once we become more theologically informed, we tend to reinterpret those texts in a way that does not allow for such theologically, quote, incorrect, unquote, views. Where does this theologically correct view of God come from? The answer, in part, is found in the way Christian thinkers have used certain Greek philosophical ideas. Greek thought has played an extensive role in the development of the traditional doctrine of God. But the classical view of God worked out in the Western tradition is at odds at several key points with the reading of the biblical text as given in the previous chapter of the book. In the classical tradition, the prima facie, which just means on the surface meaning of the text, cited in favor of the openness of God is commonly overturned of another interpretation. And so the the task of my chapter is to explain how this came about. Wow. So you have the plain reading of the Bible, and that plain reading is overturned in favor of a more philosophical understanding of the text. And you do a great job. I don't know if you recall it was many years ago, you and I met in Chicago. Do you remember that? Yes. For breakfast. And uh, one of my friends drove and had to go somewhere else in Chicago, dropped me off at the hotel. And uh, I read your chapter on the drive there and just loved it. And ever since, people who listen to this show, we've been on for 30 years, five days a week, they know that this is a foundation for our presentation of where Christian theology took a left turn when they followed Neoplatonism, when they followed Plato. And the commitment, even from Augustine, he writes in his book Confessions, that 
when the Bible is difficult to understand, he remembers Plato and he interprets it in light of Plato. So it, it really is out in the open. And I had heard these ideas attending church and studying open theism in the decade before I read your chapter, but you're the one who solidified this for me. So thank you so very much, not only for me, but for our audience for all these years. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So you then go on to talk about the early church fathers and the intellectual atmosphere in which they lived. And of course, Christians, we know that God wants us to be intellectual, and so they didn't just ignore their culture, the scholarship in their culture, so to speak. So that's what I'd like us to talk about. Uh, We typically encapsulate all that, and we sort of blame everything on Plato, but it it wasn't all Plato. There's obviously a history in Greek thought leading up to Plato. I'd like to cover some of that, but you say that this is commonly described as the Hellenization of Christian theology. Yes, but but um, I don't want to make it sound like the early church fathers just um, uh, naively read uh, Plato and the Stoics uh, and Aristotle and um, uh, went over to their views. Uh, they were, um, you know, mixing and matching. There, there were statements in Plato, for instance. Plato said, for instance, there could never be an incarnation of the gods. Mm. He said that was impossible. Well, obviously, the early Christian community said, uh, no, we think that's not just possible, but it happened. <laughs> right. And, and so right. they had to find ways to navigate around certain understandings of Plato. Yeah. So it wasn't a capitulation. I totally... Right, right. They didn't one. just, they didn't jettison all biblical truth right. to simply promulgate Greek philosophy, but they created a synthesis That's the word used. In fact, the previous pope gave a speech in Regensburg, Germany recently. Oh, it's interesting (laughs) that you recall that. Yeah, oh, yeah. And he talked about what would save the world, and he said what will save the world is the synthesis of of Greek philosophy and Christian theology. Yes. And so here's the pope. You recall that, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pope Benedict... Uh, I, I wholeheartedly rejected that idea. It's like, yeah, uh, I believe that the other church fathers, you know. So you you introduced it as we all live in a cultural milieu, and uh, I do, and you do, and so for instance, as Americans, we take th- certain things for granted, right? So for instance, um, we think nothing of going up to say a business and just you know ordering something and, and, you know, giving the person money and not knowing the person's name, not having a relationship with them, et cetera. Right. And we think that's just normal. But there are cultures in the world that think that's no way to live. <laughs> that's not proper. Um, and so, for instance, if you gave someone a gift, just like you saw someone in the street and they were singing songs and something had their guitar case sitting there and you you know, put a dollar in their, their guitar case. We, we think nothing of that. Like, yeah, that's, that's nice. Right. But there are cultures that would say, oh, no, no, that's totally unacceptable. Um, because if you give a gift, now you, you're expecting something. You what, have, right. What are the strings attached to it, for instance? Mm-hmm. 
So we all have things we take for granted. And uh, the early church fathers lived in a community where the Greek philosophical ideas were taken for granted. And, and so they had to work with those. I'm not, I'm not condemning them. I'm saying, yes, if I had lived in, that's what I would uh, have been doing. And well, some of them, in my opinion, like Tertullian, um, and there's some of Origen's followers, I believe, that uh, did a better job of navigating the biblical texts and these Greek philosophical ideas. Mm. And some church fathers, I argue, did not do as good a job. Well, here's, a mixed bag. here's an analogy that works on radio. I don't know if it worked in a scholarly journal, but if I am a theologian, I'm teaching the scriptures at Denver Bible Church, and I draw on a parallel from a Hollywood movie, and the, and the parallel makes a great point. Maybe it's the Lion King or something. And what a powerful point. That That's fine. But if I end up with a commitment to Hollywood and Hollywood's view of the world, and now I'm trying to get the scriptures to conform to Hollywood, then I've crossed a line that is not defensible. And I think that's what happened. Sure, any brilliant mind could come up with many observations that could be valuable, even if the person is downright evil. Yes. But to then, as a Christian theologian, to develop a commitment and to find that the, the fundamental ideas of deity in Greek philosophy are how I'm going to explain the God of the Bible. That's where I believe they crossed the line. And these guys are all now with the Lord. They've been with the Lord for thousands of years. Yes. And yeah. I think that when the Bible says God, Jesus will wipe away their tears, I think they recognize that what they did was wrong and they should not have conceded authority to Greek philosophy. They should have been more biblical theologians rather than systematically uh, synthesizing biblical and classical thought. Well, uh, I I largely agree with that, but I I would like to qualify it and and say that we are always navigating what we think is true. You know, let me take a, a different example out of not open theism, but whether the text in Joshua, what is it, Joshua 13, the sun stood still. Yes. And uh, the psalm that says the earth stands on its foundations, it will not be moved. And many Christians in the Middle Ages took those texts to mean that uh, the sun revolved around the earth mm-hmm. and uh, that the earth was motionless. But there were other Christians who... Uh, even as far back as the 13th century, there were Christians yeah. who said, no, 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 uh, the earth moves. And then when uh, uh, Copernicus and then later Galileo came along and said, that's the correct you know, uh, mm-hmm. position, um, there were differences about Martin Luther, for instance, said that um, the Joshua text is right. Now, that is his interpretation of the Joshua text is correct. And Galileo was wrong. Mm -hmm. But other Christians at the same time argued, no, we're misinterpreting the text. Sure. Absolutely. That's a great illustration of the fact that our understanding of our culture does, again, influence our theology. Something about geocentrism, and this 
brings me to a thought about uh, even fate and destiny from Greek religion and then sort of adopted by the philosophers. Uh, you know, Ptolemy typically is the person who's mentioned when geocentrism comes up. And it, it's like all a Ptolemy's fault. But interesting that uh, Plato had his creation myth and his spindles, and he showed the spheres of the heavens with the earth at the center and the moon and Mercury and the sun and Mars and Jupiter. And, and so it, it's interesting to me that in our culture, we sort of protect Plato from being responsible for geocentrism, for popularizing it, uh. when he really did. Can I make one related observation about that? The idea of fate and destiny, typically, if you search even like Wikipedia for years from its inception until two years ago, if you looked up, if you just Google fate, one word, fate or destiny, you come to the main Wikipedia article on it. And historically, it went back to the Greeks. Well, a couple years ago, I put a brief annotated I annotated the version of the Sumerian uh, creation epic, Enuma Elish, on yeah. our website. And they fully believed in fate. And their gods, just like uh, Zeus's daughters, the fates, and Zeus himself would be caught up in fate. That goes back to the pagan Sumerians and Babylonians. But it's interesting to me that our intellectual culture, just like they sort of protect Plato from geocentrism, and they always peg it on Ptolemy, uh, they, they never describe fate and destiny as originating with the Sumerians, and, and their religion was bizarre, and they didn't have all these, this history of these philosophers. So, so I think it's important in the history of thought to recognize that that idea, it, it didn't start with the Greeks. It started many centuries earlier, millennia earlier, with the Sumerians. Yeah, and there are a number of, of studies that actually show how, uh, see, many of the Greek, quote, philosophers were living in uh, the coast of present-day Turkey. Greece really was the, the country we think of it now, but also mm. a part of Turkey. Mm-hmm. And the ancient Hittite uh, empire and Hittite religion, which was um, uh, also influenced by the Sumerian uh, Babylonians. Uh, so the Greeks were influenced by uh, those thinkers. They did not come up with all these ideas out of a vacuum. Right. Right. It certainly is controversial, but the idea of uh, medicine being represented by a serpent on a pole, I mean, yep. Moses wrote that a thousand years before the Greeks came up with that. And we argue at American Right to Life, uh, their website, I wrote an article arguing that it's not just a coincidence. They got the idea indirectly. And the Hittites, remember David murdered Uriah the Hittite. I, yeah. I think skeptical scholars argued at some point that the Hittites didn't even exist, I think. And now there's the Anatolian Museum in Istanbul. But yeah, that cross-cultural connection to the Greeks and the influence that came from the Middle East is significant. And so when we want to talk about destiny and fate, we like we being the sort of reformed culture 
They like to bring it to the intellectual Greeks, but sorry, you got to back up to the wildly pagan, loony Sumerians. You got to start there and with their Enuma Elish. We're a bit far afield from your chapter on historical considerations. <laughs> yeah. But, John, getting back to that, so the, uh, the Hellenization of theology, what, what were the core concepts? So the, the key idea is perfection. Now, most people think perfection has just one definition, but it, it does not. So just like terms like capitalism or democracy have actually a range of meanings. And um, in Christian circles, uh, just take baptism, for instance. Um, and everybody, oh, yeah, baptism, I know what it is. But actually, there's a range of views on, on baptism. There's not a single Christian practice and, and even belief about what baptism means. So, but unfortunately, many people think that perfection means only one thing. And that's uh, what the people before Plato and then he picked up on. Um, and that's the idea that a perfect being can never change because if you're perfect and you change, now you're not perfect. Mm. And if you um, are now perfect, then you weren't perfect before you changed. So change is incompatible with perfection. And so God must be completely unchangeable. That's why Plato said a God could never become incarnate because mm. that would be a change uh, and he and he believed that god could never think new thoughts because that would be a change you quote plato in this chapter if god were to change at all he could only change for the worse yes yes and that idea has resonated through now thousands of years of christian theology and I don't recall back when I read Plato and really was distressed by his uh, by Plato's Republic, but um, when when he talked about perfection and not being able to change, I don't recall him giving any analogies or a defense of that idea. Maybe he did, and I just forget. But it's like it was an assertion. And if he would have done like he did in other instances where he would present a dialogue and say, okay, now let's think about an acorn. You know, an acorn that doesn't change, oh, wait a minute, that would never become a mighty oak tree right. or, or a mountain stream, a beautiful mountain, a perfect mountain stream compared to a stagnant pool of water. I mean, which is perfect, you know, which is sublime, which is extraordinary. So I think he would have a difficult time trying to de defend the notion that anything perfect that changed would have to change for the worse. And the early Christian theologians, when the nativity, when they thought about the nativity, they had to think that Jesus, the baby Jesus, was perfect, yet certainly the baby Jesus changed in innumerable ways, and that should have shown them, it should have falsified that yes. argument, just the nativity itself. Yes. So there are uh, contemporary uh, theologians such as Jürgen Moltmann and Robert Jensen and others who argue that the early Christian community should have pressed that point more fully and should have said, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is God incarnate, then this is really the way to think what God is like. 
But instead, what many uh, did, many thinkers did at the time, was to say, well, that was Jesus's human nature that changed. Um, so Jesus uh, grew physically. Uh, Jesus was hungry. Um, Jesus did not right, um, right. know everything. Uh, Jesus learned. And they said that's all human side, the human side of Jesus. But the divine son of God never changed in any way. And I understand the arguments and what they're worried about uh, in terms of some of the uh, Christological, what's called Christological debates in, in the uh, third and fourth centuries. <clears throat> but still, <laughs> I'm like, yes. But if you had started here, I'm uh, going to echo Jürgen Moltmann's book, uh, uh, The Crucified God, in, in which he says, if you had started from the cross and said, and say, this is what God is like, then you would have had to reject a lot more of these Greek philosophical ideas. Mm. So perhaps you would have come up with an understanding of perfection, as you just said, that perfection involves always properly changing adapting, adjusting, responding to the situation at hand. Mm. And so you can say like a clock, perfect, uh, you know, a clock that works right, perfectly changes. Um, uh, I sometimes use the example of a parent. So as w when I had a two-year-old, um, okay, I relate to my children in a, 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 a you know, particular kind of ways. But not when they're 18. If I'm still treating my 18-year-old like a two-year-old, right. there's something wrong with me. Right. And, and so perf a perfect parent adapts and changes mm. to the situation of, of the child. And so here we have a definition of perfection, as you said, that's dynamic instead of static. There was something in the Greek culture they just didn't like change. Well, and. I think that went to their desire to link their Greek religion with their Greek philosophy because their religion involved fate and destiny so much. So the philosophers, they, they wanted students. They had economic considerations. They needed somebody to pay their salaries. And so they, gave a, they invented a philosophical uh, defense of their religion and fate and destiny. And hence they came up with this commitment to immutability and timelessness. Um, when the philosophers argued, like you just explained, if you bring up the nativity and they say, well, the changes were in Christ's human nature, not his divine nature. They're sort of doing a bait and switch there. Because the discussion is, what does it mean to be perfect? And is it true that anything perfect cannot change? If it did, it would change in the direction of imperfection. The nativity, we're talking about the baby Jesus, literally the, ba the baby, his body. From the moment the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and there's this, this embryo and the fetus and, and Jesus was born, his body changed in innumerable ways. So if we could talk to Augustine and go back 1,600 years ago, and we were to say, was the baby Jesus, was his body perfect? Do you think Augustine could, 
could be consistent with his theology and say no? I, I don't think he could have gotten himself to say no. I think he would have acknowledged that the baby Jesus body was perfect. Hmm. You, you think that's I haven't, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> um, but I think he could, Augustine could say, for instance, yeah. that uh, the human body changed, and so it was imperfect. Um, <clears throat> I, I think he could say that. Um, he would say that the, uh, the soul... Uh, of Jesus was perfect. The mind of Jesus was perfect. Um, I hope you're enjoying this conversation. To me, it was fascinating. We will continue this on tomorrow's program, Lord willing. So if you'd like to, please tune back in. Also, you could go to our website, kgov.com. May God bless you.